emotions are everything. Why? Because emotions prompt our actions. So the more we can embrace the full spectrum of our emotional experience, the better, the richer life is. That includes, by the way, sadness, grief, anger, frustrate, all of it. This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 282 with guest Dr. Sasha Heinz. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, Ask Kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Of course, I am so glad that you are here. May has been quite a month over here at Your Kick-Ass Life headquarters. I went to Amsterdam to speak at a festival. I hosted a workshop retreat with the women in my mentorship masterclass group program here at my house in North Carolina. And... I'm about to go to Savannah, Georgia to celebrate my best friend's 40th birthday. Amy Smith over at The Joy Junkie, if you don't know her, you should, is turning 40 and the theme is A Shorty is 40. So we're very excited about that. And if you missed it last week, I made an announcement, which I'm going to repeat it in case you missed it. For those people who are members of my Patreon page over at patreon.com slash YKAL, those of you who support the show every month, thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. And I'm going to start coaching people here on the air. I kind of want to say live on the air, but it's not live. We're recording it ahead of time. (laughs) I guess we could do live. There's just more pressure that way. And I don't know. This is how we're doing it. We're recording ahead of time, private coaching sessions that are going to be not private anymore because they are going to be recorded here for the podcast. And I'm opening it up for applications to members of my Patreon supporters. So patreon.com slash YKAL to grab that link and to apply for one of these coaching spots here on the podcast. I'm so excited. We will probably roll those out. I'm thinking, uh, let's see, maybe June or July. I don't know. I don't know. I'm very kind of like fly. I must drive my team crazy. I'm kind of fly by the seat of my pants. Like all of a sudden, like, let's do this. And we'll just figure it out along the way. (laughs) I'm an eight on the Enneagram and I'm an Aries. So we tend to be impulsive and I, I make, uh, I make impulsive emotional decisions. Is anybody else out there like that? I don't like to research, I, I mean, I like to plan out ahead of time. I do like a good plan, but when I make a decision, I make a decision and I'm like, let's go ready. Come on, let's do it. Uh, yeah, that's just my personality. So we're running with it. I'm super pumped. Get your application over there. Patreon.com slash YKAL. And I hope I get to be on the phone with you soon. Dr. Sasha Heinz is here. She's my friend. She is very, very smart and talks about all of the things we love to talk about over here on the podcast about negative self-talk and perfectionism and all of those things. I know you're going to love this conversation, but before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit about this woman. 
Sasha Hines is a developmental psychologist and life coach, an expert in positive psychology, lasting behavioral change, and the science of getting unstuck. Dr. Hines has leveraged her academic expertise as a former faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania's Master of Applied Positive Psychology program to give her clients the tools to change their lives for good. In her private coaching practice, she helps achievement junkies feel as good on the inside as their lives look on the outside. A graduate of Harvard University and a working mom, she's lived life on the front line of the battle with perfectionism, so she can help you with that too. So without further ado, y'all, here is Sasha. Sasha Hines is here, everybody. Welcome to the show. Hi. I'm pumped. Me too. I'm I'm super excited to talk to you because I I actually, I'm excited when I get to talk to someone who I know in real life Mm -hmm. and legit know that you are cool. (laughs) (laughs) Because you never know with my guests. That's just your opinion. Yeah, I know. I'm just kidding. Every, everyone's fine. That comes on. And I'm excited to talk to you because this topic too, and I've, as I was talking to you about before, I've had some positive psychology, quote unquote, people on, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think to the extent that you have studied it, like you made it your J-O-B, got a PhD in it. And so let's, let's start there. That's where I want to start is how, like, what is positive psychology for people who I'm sure have heard the term, but aren't sure what yeah. it actually is. And how did it get started? I mean, I know it's gaining popularity. Yeah. Well, I got my master's degree in positive psychology in, so I started in the fall of 2005 and it was the first year that Marty Seligman or Martin Seligman, who wrote Authentic Happiness, it was the first year that he was offering the master's program. It was the first master's program in positive psychology at all. And we were the first 33 people to get the degree, which is so cool. The maiden voyage. Yeah. How awesome. Yes. You know, we were the, like the pioneers. It was really fun. It was an amazing year for many, many reasons. Because we were the only program, you know, he invited all of his colleagues to come and teach us, which meant that we were being taught by, you know, heads of departments of great universities. Like those were our professors. And it doesn't maybe sound like such a big deal. But when I went back to when I got my PhD and was like back in normal normal school. I was like, oh, right. People are taught by people like me, uh-huh. teaching <laughs> right. TAs, you know? And you're like, And these oh, are right. probably it's- like the people who taught you were like authors of books that most people oh my have gosh. read. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, here I am, I'm like 26 and 25 turning 26 maybe. And I had, I mean, like it was like drool worthy roster of professors that were coming to teach us. And, um, you know, and I was like, oh, ho-hum. I mean, it was really exciting, but I did not fully understand how incredible it was until, until after the fact. So but yeah, I love, like, personal like, de- these are like personal development rock stars, rock stars. <laughs> like rock stars. It's like every single self-help book is based on their research. Yes, actually, <laughs> exactly. I would, but, have been, um, I would have been starstruck as well. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was really, no, it was truly by far the most exciting academic experience I've ever had. It was really fun. But Marty started the whole thing because he had been president of the APA, the American Psychological Association. And when he was president, he challenged the entire psychological community and, you know, with this question, which is why are we spending, you know, most of our research dollars and our brain power trying to understand um, negative emotion, right? Or negative psychological experience. And, 
he, most of the white papers that were written, you know, all of those academic papers that are on psych info, you know, five to every one, five articles that were written about, you know, disease, disorder, dysfunction, like mental illness, one, only one article was written on mental health, mm-hmm. like happiness, well-being, which really doesn't make any sense because, if you're thinking about like the normal population, on average, about like 17% of the normal population, you know, experiences mental illness. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. But that still means there's like 80% of the population, right? That, right that's functioning. So that's- it's sort of like if there, it's like the analogy is like if it was a lot of help helping people who were already sick. So yeah. instead of people like if you, so it's like people who have like heart disease and high blood pressure who are like exactly diabetic or bedridden and why not help them? That's why people go to the gym ahead of time to try to help themselves. Okay. So that's what positive psychology Well, I think is. that there's like a real corollary in terms of thinking about it exactly that way, which is thinking about it in terms of the medical model, which is, you know, we've created this medical model where you go when you're acutely ill right, to get to not ill, right? And we've seen in the last, you know, 40 years, this entire industry exploding about physical fitness and, you know, um, preventative medicine and functional medicine. And it's like addressing the whole person in order to like, what if we like, here's a, you know, brain exploding idea. What if we prevent these diseases that, and like problems Mm -hmm. that people are going to the doctor to see, right? What if we could nip that stuff in the butt? So there is this sort of the same questions we're arising in the psychological world is we've really based our field on the medical model, which is we're looking at illness as opposed to how do we help people become healthy? Yeah. Remain healthy mentally and and emotionally. Right. Mm -hmm. Like optimize what we call optimal human functioning. Yeah. Well, which brings me to, you like to say, you know, that you help people manage their mind. So I know that's a super broad general question about what you do, but what, what do you, like, if someone asks you, like, what do you do personally with your clients? What, what is that? Well, so there's a difference between positive psychology and cognitive psychology. Um, positive psychology truly is studying well-being and happiness and optim- what we call optimal human functioning, right? So it's like studying people who are thriving and kind of reverse engineering that. Like, what are they doing differently than mm-hmm. the rest of the population to feel great um, and to be doing really well? Whether it's it could be like the exceptional talent, exceptional well-being, like that's what we study. Cognitive psychology, um, we're looking at how your thoughts create your psychological well-being, so um, it's slightly different, um, but obviously they're really quite related because our thinking is what creates our emotions. So when our thinking is irrational, um, which by the way, if you're human, your thinking is irrational. <laughs> that's the deal. Everybody. <laughs> Nobody is exempt. When your thinking is irrational, then it creates all of these negative emotions and negative emotions because of the way that we are just designed as creatures. When we feel negative emotions, it, what we call, there's a thought action repertoire, right? So be, there's like the thought, then there's emotion that mediates it. And then there's an action that follows. That's basically how our brains work, right? So when we're feeling a negative emotion, negative emotions prompt immediate action and a very narrow range of possible actions. So what I mean by this is that if you're feeling fear, 
there are not that many possible actions that come out of fear. Running right? away. Flight or freeze. Yeah, exactly. Options. That's it. And like everybody has their, you know, like I'm a freeze person. I feel fear and I'm like deer in headlights. My mm-hmm. IQ drops about a hundred points. You yeah. know, I can't think of anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but other people react to fear differently, but there's a very narrow band of behavioral responses to fear. Mm-hmm. What positive emotions do is they broaden this thought action rep uh, thought action repertoire. So that what that means is that there are many more behavioral options when we're in positive emotion. So think about when you're feeling like awe, gratitude, curiosity, love, um, hope, joy, you know, and serenity. There are literally infinite amount of behavioral possibilities that mm-hmm. come out of those emotions. So well, I want to. I want to talk about our thinking matters so much. Like yeah. our thinking matters. Our th- our thoughts are just literally just like words with punctuation in our you know letters made into words with punctuation in our brain. They're really meaningless, but the reason that they matter is because through this process of thought, emotion, you know, behavior, our thoughts end up creating our behavior and actions, we, we right? Put so meaning that's why it. our thoughts matter so much. Well, it's interesting to me because, and I have no idea, you know, I did not go to school for 800 years like you did for this, but I'm curious what you think of this. So I'm one not of sure the things, that that's something I should be so proud of. I just, <laughs> I just have like tried to figure it out on my own. And one of the things, because I tell the story and I, I call how, when I got to like young adulthood, And really it wasn't until probably 12, 13 years ago where I realized how I call it like emotionally illiterate I was. I just didn't Mm -hmm. know how to, I didn't know how to express emotions. They were, I was putting so much meaning around them. And one of the things that has helped me is that I actually don't call them negative emotions anymore. Mm -hmm. I just call them challenging emotions because I feel for me, because I tend to be so dichotomous in my thinking where it's like, it's good or bad. There's, you know, there's good food, there's bad food, there's good emotions, there's bad emotions. So for me, it's been helpful just to not call them negative emotions. It's helped me tremendously because I'm like, oh, it's just, it's just grief. Like what if that was just it? And for someone who has struggled to wrestle with these, you know, harder emotions, that's Mm -hmm. been helpful. So is that just something that's like the lingo of positive psychology or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think that you're doing a really smart thing, which is you're, that's managing your mind, by the way. You okay. Just, that's, that's you doing that. Yeah. No, because you're realizing like, okay, when I'm thinking of this as a negative emotion and then my thought is like, oh, I'm feeling something I bad. Have to get out of it. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. It makes you want to avoid it more as opposed to opening up to it. Right. So you're just changing the way you're thinking about it to mm-hmm. help you become more open, which is exactly what you want to be doing, right? To get curious about it as opposed to like exactly. shutting it down. Mm-hmm. One of the, I mean, I think that I agree, like there, are, there's a range of emotions that we feel. Um, labeling some as bad and some as good, I think is not useful because sometimes like serenity is totally unuseful. Serenity can be a completely unuseful emotion sometimes. <laughs> um, someone is, you know, hurting my child. Serenity is no bueno. Um, right. Uh, so there are times when you, when that doesn't make sense. And then, and there are times when anger does make sense. Um, there are times when guilt makes sense. So I think the idea is like, are you being deliberate about your thinking so that your emotions are moving you toward the life you want to be living and who you want to be like to your, the, your emotions are moving you toward your valued self. And, and again, like, I think there are gratuitous, you know, 
because it's easier to know what I'm talking about, negative emotion. Like there are gratuitous negative emotions and there are instructive negative emotions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for telling me I'm doing something right. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. That's exactly right. Because sometimes like, you know, it's the whole game is emotions. Like emotions are everything. Why? Because emotions prompt our actions. So the more we can embrace the full spectrum of our emotional experience, the better, the richer Mm -hmm. life is. That includes, by the way, sadness, grief, anger, frustrate, all of it. Yes. I Okay. We're probably going to circle back to that, but there's one thing I want to ask you that I thought of, right? I don't want to forget about it because the question I hear over and over again, and, and for those people that don't know, I studied my cert- I have a certification with Brene Brown's work and her methodology around her mm-hmm. research on shame. And that is directly related to the feelings of worthiness and you know the yep. feeling of not enough. And I know that, that that is what some of the work that, that you do as well. So mm-hmm. what, because it's the million dollar question that, that we hear all the time, like, how, and I can tell people my experience of this, but I'm super curious of what just, I guess, just start talking. Like, what is your, what is your speech around the, around worthiness and not enoughness? And more specifically, what are the steps that people can take to get to that place of worthiness? Well, I mean, I think that any, all of our emotional suffering on some level can, or, you know, psychological suffering, if you pull back the veil, like mm-hmm. if you pull back the curtain far enough, it's always a not enough issue. Yeah. Always. Always. Like not mm-hmm. smart enough, not pretty enough, not funny enough, not lovable enough, you know, not talented enough. Like that's, it's, it's always at its core, it's some not enoughness. And the good news is you can walk around the world and look at everybody in the eye and be like, oh good, you're suffering from the yeah. same thing that Man, I am. Man, woman. Yeah. It doesn't discriminate. Yeah. Yep. Everybody has this on some level. So, you know, I think that, and, and actually I was think about this too. If you know, you think about like shame is such a hiding emotion. And, you know, even in the Judeo-Christian tradition, if you think about the story of Adam and Eve, what the first negative emotion Mm -hmm. that they experience or challenging emotion they experience is shame. Like the first thing they do is right. They eat the, they eat the fruit and they're in the garden. They're in like lovely paradise. Everything's wonderful. And then they eat the fruit and all of a sudden God's like, where are you? And what they're like covering themselves We're up. We're naked. Right? Don't they're look. Naked. Yeah. They're like, don't look at me. <laughs> um, I, so I, I think that's like, that's, it's such a universal experience. Like it's the first story in, at least in the Judeo-Christian yeah. tradition about human beings. Like I find that to be fascinating because I do think it's like, it's at the core of uh, uh, it's at the core for everybody. Yeah. At least uh, of this culture, absolutely positively. Yeah. Yeah. And because here's, here's my experience in it. And here's how I explain it to people is that I, for a long time thought that there was like this answer, like there's this solution and I'm going to, I'm going to get there <laughs> being the overachiever that I am. I'm going to hack into this. And maybe that's one of the reasons I was so drawn to her work, but what I have found in my experience, and this is the gist I get from when Brene talks about it is that it is, it is an, we, it's kind of a constant striving. It's a roller coaster. It's peaks and valleys. And there are some times where I'm feeling so worthy and it's not just because of my achievements, which it used Mm -hmm. to be, but it's because Mm -hmm. of the health of my relationships. It's because of the way that I'm speaking to myself. It's because of what I am choosing to focus on and my thoughts and everything that you've been talking about. And then sometimes I fall into that trap of feeling not enough, but the difference is now is that I know when it's happening and I can choose to manage it instead of 
before where I would just let that take me away like a, like a water slide and not know where I was going to end up. And then I end up making choices and decisions and treat people a certain way because I was in that place. Oh yeah. That's, that's how I explain it now that it's not a place. It's not a destination. It's just this constant journey that we're all on. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I I work with a lot of high achieving people or people that are, you know, that have externally look like everything's really going very well. But the truth is like, and this is, I have a a sort of, you know, with the, I hold it with a grain of salt. Like there is so much, and I, I'm a goal, I'm a goal setting junkie. I love to set goals. And, um, you know, I think it's really important to sort of know what the destination is. Like, what are you going after? It really matters, Mm -hmm. but you can also be on that achievement treadmill. Like, you know, where you just are desperately trying to achieve and, you know, get more accolades and more little, you know, badges and trophies and all of that just to feel like to just maintain that sense of self, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, you're, you're just like running away, you know, sprinting away from that feeling of unworthiness. And the only way you're able to do that is by, you know, collecting these accolades over time. And that can work but it will leave you so burnt yeah, and so exhausted. And I think everyone at some point will hit that brick wall of like, I can't do this anymore. Like this is right. You sort of think like, for what, what's the point? Like you're constantly running away from that feeling of, of, you know, like you're hustling constantly for your worthiness, which is just exhausting. And, um, you know, when you begin to realize like, okay, wait a minute, my sense of value and my, you know, my sense of worthiness or like just liking who you are, Mm -hmm. that is my work in my brain, right? Like there's no external. And I think what happens is that people achieve a lot and they're they're like, I should feel amazing about myself. Isn't it strange that I don't? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, And that to me is when like the fun work starts. Me too. Like I get all giddy because <laughs> we, yeah, that's when I think that they seek out someone like you or me where they, they get to that place where they have checked off all the boxes and they're, mm-hmm. and they're standing there, like looking at all of their trophies and accolades and, and, um, you know, diplomas on the wall. And they're like, why did this not bring me what I thought that it would, what was promised right. to me? And uh, okay. Do you have experience with that? A hundred percent. I mean, my, my entire <laughs> life, like this is my life. You know, in a snow globe. But yeah, I mean, I um, my enti- I constantly I when I was a kid, I was diagnosed with a lot of learning disabilities, and I always thought that I was not smart enough. Um, so how do you deal with that? Well, you get a bazillion degrees. Like yeah. that's a good way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. But then you get the degrees, and you're like, oh, dang it, <laughs> that thought is still there because all of those actions not all the time. Like I am so grateful. I look back and like, I'm so grateful that I made the choices that I did because I love what I do. And I think Penn was a real turning point for me. Like it was the first time I was doing, I was going after something in in academic, like from a place of true passion and joy. Like Mm -hmm. it was, it came out of a completely different emotion it came out of a like positive emotion as opposed to, I must go to an Ivy league college. I must, because if I don't, then like the jig is up that I'm not smart enough. Right. So every, all of the, that, like all of that striving and all of that energy and all of that hard work was fueled by my, you know, anxiety, worthlessness, all of that. Right. So is it any surprise that like when you, 
you know, cross the finish line and you check the box and, but all of that is fueled from, you know, worthlessness and anxiety. Mm-hmm. You're like, isn't it weird? I don't feel good. <laughs> no. Totally I found normal. it infuriating. It I don't know about you. Yeah. <laughs> I felt yeah, like, you're like I'm cheated. standing here with a Harvard diploma and I feel like shit about myself. Right. I felt like I'd been cheating what? and I, I didn't even get as far as you did. I, I actually, I had an epiphany when I was, I had got my bachelor's degree in exercise physiology and I was, I was, um, about to apply. San Diego state has a dual masters in nutrition and exercise physiology. And I was talking to the, the Dean and everything. And I was like, that's something told me like, just not to do it. And then I, I realized that I was doing it for the letters after my name. Like that was really yeah. the only reason I had, mm-hmm. it's not that I had lost interest in the topic, but it was, I, I couldn't really see myself doing doing it forever and ever. Amen. And I just, I really had to take a step back and, and look at him and I'm glad that I did. And I, so here's where it gets, I feel like tricky. And I'm, I kind of want to go in this direction because I feel like my audience might really relate to this and it can be a double-edged sword because on one hand, and I still am, I'm almost 44 years old and I'm highly motivated when people underestimate me. Oh yeah. I am like, cause so, so you and I were in a mastermind together and there's a woman in there who told this story. She posted in the group. I don't know if you saw this post, but she said that her financial advisor, she's married and they had called her husband to make, to ask oh, yeah, the question. Yeah, yeah. And like her husband yeah. wasn't even on this particular money account that they had. And she was like, I'll fucking show them. And I was totally. like, all caps, like, yes, woman, because that type of shit, like, don't, don't challenge me because I'm oh, yeah. going to go twice as hard. So on one hand, I think that it has served me. On the other hand, I have definitely been in that place where I have been motivated by anything really got to the other side of it and then been a little disappointed <laughs> right. at what it brought me. Right. I know. I mean, we're very we're human beings are a conundrum. Um, I know what motivates us is really fascinating. I, I also have that like button to push, you know, if someone underestimates what I can do, the reverse psychology, I'm like, I'm in. Mm-hmm. I, one time when I was in my early, like mid twenties, um, we were out to dinner with someone who owned this uh, outdoor survival school called Boulder Outdoor Survival School. And it's pretty gnarly. Like, no, you don't have any sleeping bags. You just have like a blanket, uh, a seatbelt strap, pee cord. And I mean, it's like Some really bare like bones. And, and the whole idea is like, you're going into the wilderness, to, like survive as if you were in a plane crash, right? And like, you have nothing. And we were all sitting around at the table and he was like, yeah. I mean, he was just throwing it down sort of like, I don't think you could probably, like you guys probably wouldn't be interested or you couldn't do it. And I literally went home that night and signed up for it. I was like, oh yeah? Oh really? You don't think I can do that? I mean, it's so bonkers. And then six months later, here I am in like Provo, Utah, finishing up the course. And he was there and he was like, what are you doing here? I was like, well, you threw down the gauntlet. So I just finished it. (laughs) Oh my God. Where's my prize? Right. But so like, I have that too. And I'm still really proud that I did it. Right. But I think as I get um, I think I actually think that's kind of like fun. It makes it into this like weird mm-hmm. personal competition, right? Like I, who am I proving it to? Like nobody, I'm proving it to myself. Yeah. Right. So that's, but I think that's where the achievement stuff is fun when you're like, okay, let's just see what I can do. Let's see what I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I just want to challenge myself. And if I don't do it, no big deal. You know, I, right. I can, that's the key I'll, right there. What you said. Yeah. Like if I don't finish or I don't accomplish it, or I do the race slower than I wanted to, or the launch is a bust, it's done. Like, do I want to do it again? And if I do want to do it again, how can I do it smarter or more successfully and get curious about it? But when it becomes about your identity, like I'm, I'm not good enough, or I, 
you know, I didn't cross the finish line in the race, so I'm, I suck, you know, or I did this launch and it failed in, you know, according to what I wanted to do. And so I better just like pack it in because it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it definitely, I think it's, it's, some of it's about getting to know yourself. Like A, of course, what we were talking about, what motivates you? And B, like for, for a long time, I'll give you an example. I would sign up for races, whether it was a triathlon or a 10K or something. So, because that would motivate me. Like I, it was, it was the fear of like public humiliation for me. Yeah. <laughs> that's a motivator. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want, I heard this story once of this, uh, this woman I worked with said that her friend had signed up for this triathlon and brought all her friends to come cheer her on. And it was in the, the swim portion was in the ocean and you had mm-hmm. to get past the waves. And for like 45 minutes, their friend could not get past the waves. And they were like, it was just painful to watch her just struggle and struggle and struggle. And she finally gave up. And like, I, ever since I heard that story, I was like, that will never be me. Like, never. <laughs> So that fear of like just totally shame and humiliation has motivated me. But I wanted to get to a point, and this is actually just recent, where I'm like, I don't, I don't want to need that to motivate me to be physically healthy. And and I've since changed that. But my point is, is that to get curious about what motivates you as well as the outcome, like, is the outcome going to dictate how you feel about yourself as a whole? That's what I want the takeaway to be for people. Yeah. I mean, by the way, like how awesome is a woman who couldn't get past the waves invite all of her friends? Like (laughs) that is the best story. Like she's at a dinner eight years later, like laughing her ass off telling the story, right? Yeah. Like that's funny. And I, I think that's what makes our life <laughs> God, actually awesome. Like yeah. who wants to have the boring life where they're like, yes, I went after that, nailed it. Um, like a person's <laughs> insufferable, right? No, like we all have a human life and we make mistakes and we do incredibly silly things. And um, and, and, or like have a public, you know, a public face plan and, and it can be a, like the funniest thing, right. Late yeah. years later. So I think it's all about recognizing, right. Like a, what motivates you. Um, but again, like when you're doing, like I, when someone like challenges me, you know, that like gets me going in a, in kind of this like fun competitive way, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, if I don't achieve this, like I am going to have to like hide because I'm a useless, pathetic person and I must achieve this. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to have to own up to the world that I don't even deserve to be here. Yeah. There's a big difference. Oh my big difference. (laughs) Well, I want to switch gears here because I want to ask you this one thing. And I think you and I briefly talked about this when, when we met in January. And one of, one of, I think one of my favorite self-help books is The How of Happiness. And can you pronounce her last name for me? Sonia. Oh, Lubomirsky. Lubomirsky. Yes. She was also one of our professors. I I had a feeling. Yeah. It was her and, and her friends that wrote this book about the science of happiness. So can you Mm -hmm. explain to us, like, basically she's talking about that everyone is born with a set point of happiness and that your circumstances really don't dictate all that much, you know, (laughs) your happiness. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, so this, I mean, it may sound sort of like a duh now because it's almost 20, almost 20 years later, which is so crazy, but close to it. But when this finding, what they did is they looked at a a number of, you know, I don't know how many participants were in the study, but what they were looking at is how much, actually, actually, I do know they were using twin studies. So they had identical twins and they were looking at how much can we attribute their, you know, well-being to genetic 
to heredity. So like what you're born with and, you know, we all have different, there's the big five personality traits. Um, you know, whether you're, um, open to experience or not, like you, whether you're extroverted or introverted, you're easygoing or more neurotic, um, I, which is, it's gotten, neurotic's gotten a really bad rap, but anyway, that's the technical term. Are you personally but, offended uh, by that one? <laughs> right, right. It's like, everyone's like, dang it, I'm neurotic. Um, but so everybody does have like a, you know, you came out of the womb with a particular set of personality traits. And so what she found in, look, in these twin studies was that about, 50% of people's well-being was attributed to, because they're looking at twins who are separated, right? So they're identical okay. twins, so exactly the same genes in two different environments, right? So 50% of, more or less 50% of what explains the variance or the difference in well-being score between people was explained by heredity. Mm-hmm. Only about 10% was explained by external circumstances. So, you know, where you live, whether or not your parents are divorced, um, whether you're married, not married, uh, whether what, yeah, like what you, what your job is, like all of those external factors, whether you have kids or not. And which leaves 40% when what they were found was like 40% of your well being is malleable is due to like the difference in score is due to deliberate exercise and activity like things that you do to increase your well-being. That's a lot. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I don't, you know, genes matter. Yeah, genes definitely matter, but you have a lot of room to change your life. You have a lot of room to feel better. So even if you weren't born, I mean, some people are born with more activity on, I don't remember which side of the brain it is, but there's one side of the brain where you, if you, there, they do scans of babies and they'll see like some have more activity on one side of their brain in the, um, you know, in the neocortex. And those children tend to be more easygoing, relaxed, like more sunny, more smiley. Mm-hmm. And the kids that have more activity on the other side tend to be more, you know, like, they cry more. They have more, they have a harder time with separation. Like it's just, they're just born differently. They're just wired differently. But even with that, like you, you can still change your, you know, the degree to which you feel, you know, your like happiness, your sense of well being in life by doing deliberate things to increase that. And that was like, again, it sounds sort of like a dull now, but you know what? 20 years ago, this was like groundbreaking. We had no idea. We kind of thought like, well, it's just kind of who you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or thought that your circumstances massively impacted yes. how happy like, you I are. think that what the human brain does is we, and I really hard to consciously remember every minute of the day that whatever's going on, the traffic jam that you're in, the fact that your kid screamed at you this morning, the, you know, stressful thing that's going on at work or whatever, none of that is actually making you feel bad it's very hard to remember that. Yeah. Because you are the human brain wants to be like, oh yeah, no, I'm in a bad mood today because it's it's gray out and it's raining and you know, I'm I didn't have time to work out because blah 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 happened. Like, no, you don't feel good because of the thoughts that you're thinking about all of those things. That's that's one of the things like I remember where I was sitting when I found when I was just introduced to the whole concept of being able to manage your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> 
I, I told this at a speaking event I was at recently. I was sitting in a conference room in Los Angeles at with the Coaches Training Institute, and they were talking about, I mean, essentially they were talking about the inner critic. They call it the saboteur, which mm-hmm. is mildly hilarious. And I'm like, you can't mm-hmm. put a French name on it and like expect it to sound better. Like it's not, it's not like you'll play. Well, it's better to me than gremlin. That True. really makes me want to poke my <laughs> So the saboteur. And I remember thinking, like, I wanted to shout out, like, wait a minute, wait, are you? Are we all hearing this? Like, you mean to tell me the voice that I hear in my head that tell, like that compares me to everybody else that tells me mm-hmm. not to go for it because I'm going to look stupid? Like, I can, sh- I have power over that. Like, sign me up. Who do I pay money to? <laughs> right. I went whole hog on it. They didn't. Totally. They taught us enough to help our clients, but I dove way in beyond the training that they had given us because. I knew that this, that had the power to change my life if I could, and I love control anyway. So maybe that's another reason I was attracted to it, but I'm like, if I can control this, I'm in. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's right. And it, it, and you can absolutely, it just requires practice, but here's what's so funny to me about managing your mind and, you know, doing thought work or working on your thinking and thinking on purpose. What I find so funny about it is if, if I said to any of my clients like, okay, here, we're here and we're going to learn how to play tennis. That's what we're doing here. I'm going to coach you and teach you how to play tennis. In their mind, they would be completely fine with a few things. One, practicing frequently, uh-huh. right? There's no way that they're going to, they know there's no way they're going to get better without practicing it. Secondarily, they would have a timeline that was reasonable. I mean, like probably not going to be you know, Andre Agassi after a month. Right. So they would have a I know like, exactly where this is going. I'm just right? waiting for you to tell us. So my clients are like at, with but with thought work, you're like, dude, honestly, like why am I still thinking these thoughts? I'm like, because it requires practice. Like because because thinking in a new way requires actual like roll up your sleeves practice every day, right? With different exercises, asking yourself different kinds of questions, reframing things in your brain. The second you hear yourself going down one road, you're like, whoop, backtrack. Let's Mm -hmm. try that again, right? Like your forehand isn't working. They're all going into the net and you're like, oh, got to tweak something, right? But we don't do that with our brain. We're like, you know, should we want every, we want it done yesterday, Yes. I'm so glad you said that. I can't even tell you. I I used to do, I haven't done it in a long time. And, and, and part of it was because I feel like I was attracting a lot of people who just like wanted that quick fix. So I would do this free seven day challenge. And it was Mm -hmm. all about just learning the basics of starting to do that and learn how to manage your, your thoughts. And I had so many people who were like, okay, I tried the first tool and it worked for like 10 minutes. And then later on that day, I had negative thoughts again. And they're looking at me like, what gifts, Andrea Owen? <laughs> like what? I, and I'm like, y'all, like, oh my God, you're essentially learning a new language. Mm-hmm. You have got to practice and commit. So we, we're th- that's the announcement for this episode. Yeah. You have to practice and commit. Exactly. Like love is a practice. Gratitude mm-hmm. is a practice. Worthiness, Acceptance is a all practice. Of all of it for is a sure. practice. Well, speaking of practice, tell everyone how they can either work with you or follow you online and, and get more get more of the goods from Dr. Sasha Hines. Yeah. Well, first of all, come hang out with me on Instagram. I am, as Andrea knows, I am Facebook phobic. So I, I do I, not I, well, will you just like, Before you continue, will you tell people what you told me about the study around Facebook and the $100,000? Oh, yeah. So we've, you know, there's a lot of research on what actually makes us happier. And the truth is, we, you would be everyone listening. I mean, I have social media too, but here's the deal. We would all be happier 
by canceling, deleting all of our social media feeds than we would if we got a $100,000 raise. Right. Like we think that a $100,000 raise is going to make us exceptionally happier. There's a lot of research that shows that there's basically, which I think is mind blowing, but it's a $75,000 a year annual income, uh, family income actually, that that seems to be sort of like the threshold where things kind of level out in terms of, you know, well-being. Mm -hmm. So the idea is like basically from, you know, below $75,000 a year as a family income, it, it does impact your well-beings. You're like dealing with real financial stress and like trying to make ends meet and figure out how to make it work. Like obviously this is, we're talking about in the United States because mm-hmm. $75,000 family income somewhere else would be living large. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, it seems like there's only a well-being increase. And this is really interesting in one's um, evaluation of their life. Yeah. So their emotional happiness, like their feelings of happiness or their feelings of positive emotion don't actually increase after that income threshold, but their evaluation of how they're doing in life does increase. So I think that that's really, really fascinating because at the end of the day, it's like, Oh, that all that means is like, Oh, you're just managing your mind, right? (laughs) Like it's all your thoughts. Yes, more evidence. It's like you could be just as happy at $75,000 family income as you could at a million dollar a year family income if you learn to manage your thinking. Yeah. Like that's really what all it's saying, which I think is so fascinating. It's but profound. the takeaway is just cancel. If you just don't go on social media, you'd actually be, be happier. The magnitude of the effect is bigger for social media than it is for income. That's that's so fascinating. Okay, so th- another reason you're not on Facebook, but you are on Instagram, and I follow I, yeah, you on sorry. Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> you and you do you do write really interesting things over there on your posts. It's not just a bunch of pictures of your your kids. Yeah, I, lo- I love. Um, it's just I have a really fun time with my Instagram feed, and I love getting feedback from people that are following and and like what they're going through. And and anyway, but yeah, it's sort of like what's on my mind, what I'm thinking about, what I'm working on with clients. Um, a little like in, a little inspo, um, and hopefully some truth. Um, and then also my website. Come find me on my website, drsashaheins.com, and all of those yeah. links are in the show notes. Everyone, thank you so much for being here today. This has been super so fun. fun. It's always yeah, a treat to chat with you. And everyone, thank you so much for being here with us. I know that your time is so valuable and the fact that you choose it with me and my guests means the absolute world to me. And until next time, everyone, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.